and we're back again, this time to record episode 22 of the Executives in Wealth Management podcast. For this session, we were joined by Stephen Gazard, Chief Distribution Officer at Quilter. Really enjoyable story. Uh, Steve makes you laugh, makes you smile all the way through the conversation. It's a story that starts as one of three boys to a family of teachers, defines himself as the, the black sheep of the family for not pursuing a career in education, to clearly a natural entrepreneurial flair, starting multiple businesses or being involved, it's probably a better phrase, in multiple businesses from a very young age, from pig farming to uh, antique selling to satellite production. Um, the ones on the house, not in the sky, but uh, very exciting. And we talk about Steve's career and how it progressed from falling into advice to running small advice businesses right the way through to transitioning and running transformation programs in larger organizations right the way through to PLC. Steve offers some really good insights into pace of change and delivering transformation projects. Death by a thousand cuts is not always better than just getting there and moving forward with momentum. I think most importantly, we we move the conversation to perspective and and life and how Steve had the very unfortunate experience when his 14-month-old daughter, I suppose, was stricken down with, with meningitis and the charitable work that Steve has done as a consequence of that. Very, very pleased to say that his daughter made a full and healthy recovery as he says himself but um really great experience it will make you laugh it's a great opportunity to to share steve's story and i i hope you get as much out of it as i did steve how are you i'm very well i'm very well it's a friday afternoon back in the southwest so everything must be improving (laughs) yeah living the dream living the dream Exactly. exactly how about yourself yeah really good really Really exciting time for us. Uh, busy week, busy week next week. So yeah, look, looking forward to the weekend. I'll say that we'd be bored otherwise. If people keep telling me anyway. Yeah, you know, exactly. Um, maybe we'll find out one day. But exactly. Um, so the purpose of this conversation, Steve, as I'm sure you know by now, is to really understand Steve, you, um, and we like to start by understanding. The things that made you who you are, perhaps how you were brought up or you know, just notable points in your life that I think shaped you. So if you can, in a few moments, can you just give us a bit of bit of background on you growing up and life before work? Yes. Um, uh, yes. I mean, fairly typical, really, um, but ended up being definitely the black sheep of the family um, as, I, as I come from a family of teachers. So um, my uh-huh. father is a teacher. My mother is a teacher. My brother is a teacher. My other brother is a teacher. Uh, so, yeah, so I, uh, I definitely the black sheep uh, and had the joys of the fact that my father was actually a teacher at the school I went to. So that that oh. was always interesting as well. So, yeah, so that, that was my uh, kind of upbringing in, uh, in Gloucestershire. Uh, I guess during that period of time. Uh, what did your what did your what did your parents teach? So my father was a chemistry teacher, uh, and my mum was uh, kind of English and religious studies. Uh, so yeah, so for, kind of varied. And my eldest brother is uh, a music professional now, and my middle brother is a sports teacher. So yeah, it's okay. it's a kind of varied family from that perspective. Yeah, it is. Was you good at chemistry? No. But unlike my brother, I didn't fail GCSE chemistry uh, that my father taught. So that was fine. Ah, 
he had many sleepless nights about that. But uh, yeah. yeah, but how was uh? I've got three three children for my sins. Um, no, I love them really. But um, three boys is is a handful, I suspect. I'm sure. I think we were angelic. Yeah, I mean, we we had we had the benefit that because Dad was a teacher, uh, we lived pretty close to the school, which was a mixture of a boarding school and a day school. And I, uh, bluntly, I had all the benefits of being able to hang around with the boarders, all the benefits of the school campus, but then actually able to nip home at the, at the end of the day when yeah, they all went, went to their dorms, as it were. So, yeah, actually, it was a it was a phenomenal period, uh, fairly consistent you know schooling from a young age uh, didn't have to move around uh yeah so it, it worked out well but uh, yeah certainly certainly learned to navigate the kind of history around that on the basis of two older brothers who'd been through the school already kind of helped uh and and we kind of got to our equilibrium with my father of we didn't cause him trouble he didn't cause us trouble uh, and the threat was always that if we did misbehave we'd be we, we'd end up at the school that my mother was a teacher at which would have been far more far more painful <laughs> okay all right. And was you a a, a diligent student, Steve? No, no which, is, which is challenging when you've now got two teenagers that you're trying to, you, you're trying to tell to knuckle down and do their homework and do their studies. And you're kind of going, yeah, you probably did the bare minimum to get by. Um, and right. uh, yeah, I, I mean, I was, I was kind of involved in running a few kind of sideline businesses whilst I was at school. So yeah, I, I, academically, definitely not diligent. <laughs> Okay. Tell me about these businesses then. What what was you getting up to? Yeah, so I mean, I guess from, from that perspective, it, uh, I mean, I'd love to be the one that broke your rhythm of these podcasts, which is, you know, I can't tend, to, tend to be my Monday evening listen as I drive to, in, in from Southwest into London. But I'd love to be the one that told you that I really, really chose to end up in financial services and break that rhythm yeah. for you. <laughs> I, I didn't. Um, but yeah, I mean, when I was at, when I was at college and school, then then ultimately... I had varied uh, kind of business interests, pr- primarily mostly to do with cars in some shape or form. Um, but yeah, what would now be classified as a car detailing company, but back then was just car washing, um, uh, and uh, you know, lots of lots of uh, kind of work around that space. I then got involved with a neighbour who was designing uh, a satellite system. Uh, back then, you used to have satellite dishes that you pointed at Utilsat that. Got you, got you your Sky B, et cetera, et cetera. But you used to have motorized dishes back then that you could move. Um, my neighbor designed uh, something that went on the actual satellite dish that meant you could move the arm remotely from your living room, as it were. I got involved in that, helping build the first 10,000 by hand in his garage, then selling and marketing those, going to huge numbers of shows to sell those. So I got involved in that. Um, then got involved with another friend's father, um, who was in, involved in pig farming, bankruptcies, receiverships, antiques businesses, um, a tree nursery. Uh, yeah, and kind of worked with him huge amounts, uh, particularly in between going from school to university. Um, uh, and that was kind of where I ended up kind of working with David through that period of time, really. So, yeah, yeah. V- very varied, definitely. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't quite what I was expecting. Well, that is quite yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or whilst I was allegedly being very diligent and studying for my A-levels. Oh. Exactly. Studying for that chemistry GCSE. You tend to cross yeah. over that when I'm talking to my own kids. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. And so let, let's talk about life as you, you arrived at university then. What, what, was, what was university like for you? 
Yes, I mean, university was an interesting one because I wasn't there for very long. Um, uh, again, it goes back to that. If you come from a generically academic family, I actually didn't realize there was any option but to go to university is, is the reality. Mm -hmm. um, and my mum will re still recount that my dad, being a master at the school, went down to collect my A-level results whilst mm -hmm. I was still in bed um, and came back and shared the A-level results. And uh, Allegedly, m my response to it was, ah, oh, damn, they're good enough. That means I've got to go to university. Um, so I, uh, I, I went to Bristol UWE uh, to study business with finance. Um, that's where I met my wife, um, and uh, two years, two years there really. Um, but was involved in particularly the setting up the antiques business and the tree nursery and the uh, bankruptcies and receiverships business at the time. Um, so didn't spend as much time at uni as I should have done. Is the reality? Um, got through the first right. year, second year. Uh, I th well, I mean, put it in context. I think I turned up for my quantitative methods exam and the lecturer asked me who I was on the basis I actually hadn't been to a single lecture all year. So yeah, not, not, not the greatest shining example of academia. Um, and uh, yeah, I left uni at the end of the second year, effectively. Um, partly because David, who was the guy I was involved in these businesses with, uh, had originally been a pig farmer by trade. So a very, very random story here, but had been a pig trader by, uh, by trade. Um, had then become quite ill uh, with cancer, gone into hospital, then come back out, recovered, but he'd lost the farm at that point, went into consultancy for farming randomly, um, and then built up a bit of a portfolio over the years, which is when I got to know him, um, and had this huge passion in antiques. Um, and my friend that I knew at the time, and we'd literally be in her house on the kind of Monday and all the furniture would change by the Tuesday because he'd sold it all. Uh, it was very <laughs> random. So he, he, we set up a natural antiques business together. Um, intention being that we use it as a bit of an example of a business case, business study from my university. Ron being the kind of guy who was up at five in the morning, working through till six in the evening to the guy who was up at five in the morning, but pretty crippled by 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, diagnosed originally with MS, um, actually many years later died, uh, um, diagnosed with phosphate poisoning from jumping in and out sheep dips and stuff throughout his, his life as it will. Um, but uh, wow. ultimately was told by his doctors that he had to have a fairly significant shift in the way in which he was operating, stress wasn't helping, etc. Um, and he kind of decided to take it a bit easier I'd kind of left uni by now, um, thinking, oh, right, that hasn't quite planned out as I expected it. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was then actually through some of the deals that we'd done, I'd got uh, to know uh, a number of the local estate agents through some of the land deals that we had. Um, and was kind of given a random bit of a lifeline at the time to go in and be an estate agent. So having come out of uni, looking around, working out what I was going to do, did a stint in estate agency, which I really loved in all fairness. It was great, um, but there's no money in it as far as I could see. Um, and that's when I accidentally fell into financial services. Um, I sold a property to one of the regional directors of uh, a newly formed division of Prudential. Um, and that individual kind of hooked me in. I was, what, 20 at the time, hooked me into be an advisor with Prudential Private Financial Planning. So that kind of 
launched me into the financial services world at the age of 20, really, um, knowing absolutely nothing. So, um, yeah, I went into that uh, with the training, uh, which was phenomenal, uh, and it's a very small world. And one of my original managers at Peru told me never get on the wrong side of anyone because you never know when when, when it's going to come back. Uh, and weirdly, two of the managers who trained me at the Prudential now work in our current business. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a very random small world, that's for sure. Um, so, yeah, yeah so that I, I kind of ended up there at the age of 20, so that would have been 1996. Nice, nice. And, and talk me through... Uh, talk me through, I guess, from landing, selling a house to the RD at Peru to kind of get yeah. a job and starting to be an advisor to the point of, I guess, competence, um, yeah. to when you had your first opportunity to step into a position of leadership. What was what was that journey like? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I had a completely unremarkable start at Prudential. Uh, absolutely unremarkable. Um, I mean, those were back in the days of leaderboards on the wall and, you know, all that kind of oh, stuff. Yeah. Yeah, my, name, my name was never never very far up that is the reality. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, re reality was natural target audience of that was, you know, families, you know, around the kitchen table in an evening and I had no empathy or understanding of that world. Um, and actually what happened, I got uh, involved with one of the very early dot-com millionaires uh, who was a kind of 19-year-old dyslexic individual who uh, set up one of the original search engines that, that kind of took off. And uh, he and I both decided that actually, you know, he wanted to kind of do a lot of the planning for the future, etc. But bluntly, his father was an accountant, didn't want to do it with a tied agent at the time. Um, and I made the shift from there into a local Bristol-based IFA business. Mm -hmm. um, in order to facilitate primarily that that one kind of client was really the rationale for going. Um, built a bit of a business uh, kind of portfolio there of business owners um, in, in that space. But that business particularly, there were a number of kind of industry leaders around at the time. Uh, and this was a very interesting time in Bristol because you had, you know, Hargreaves and uh, Burns Anderson and Redcliffe Associates yeah, and Open Group that I ended up at later uh, and Kilminster, which is where I was. Um, and uh, yeah, that was a, an interesting experience, um, but a really great one in many, many ways. So, I mean, the key thing that that gave me exposure to was a coaching program called Strategic Coach, um, yeah. which still I, you know, firmly use the kind of principles of on a daily basis. And, and, um, that, that period probably represented the sea change for me into leadership um, because what that and what the coach program talks about is that in any one day you will do stuff you're uniquely gifted at, you're excellent at, you're competent at, and you're incompetent at, and that really you should be seeking to focus as much of your time on the things that you're uniquely gifted at rather than the stuff that you're competent, excellent, and certainly not incompetent at, um, and delegate the rest. Um, and I think what I established through that kind of coach program uh, was that actually, whilst the, the advice side, uh, you know, I enjoyed, it didn't drive me in the same way as actually facilitating an environment in which other advisors could be far more successful than I was ever going to be. Um, right. And therefore, I kind of moved into that 
or recruitment, management, leadership, marketing kind of areas of a relatively small business. So, you know, it's one of those kind of environments if the bins needed emptying, you know, you, you emptied the bins. You know, if someone had been sick yeah. on the doorstep over the weekend, because this was central Bristol, you, you know, you, you, you were out there cleaning the doorstep. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was quite, you know, a vast experience from setting up the, the the, the, the IT network in the business through to recruiting firms, you know, some of which are still with me now in, in the current business. Um, and yeah, it was a, it was a really transformational period of my life. Um, and, and equally a great lesson learning. It was one of those where the impetuousness of youth, clearly I thought I knew it all. Um, and equally thought that once I was on the board of directors, which, you know, I achieved quite quickly that, I'd be able to change decisions that I didn't agree with. And, uh, you know, once I had the title and once I was on the board and this, that, and the other, and actually it was a great lesson to learn at probably the age of 24, 25, that actually, unless, unless you were the majority shareholder, it made no difference. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, titles don't matter. Structures doesn't matter. You, you know, the ownership was the thing where the decisions were made. So that was, that was a great period of, of my life. Um, but you, you know, uh, uh, was one of those where, yeah, certainly we, we had no money, that was for sure. Um, and, uh, yes, I was, uh, we'd moved to London, uh, during that period of time as well, because my wife was qualifying as a fund manager. So I was traveling the reverse commute to most people and certainly the reverse commute to what I do now. Um, so I was, I was traveling from London to Bristol every day. Um, uh, certainly towards the end of the month, those people who know Bristol there used to be a, a service station at the bottom of uh, the M32 called Sylvie Services. Um, which is where I knew I had to fill up the car at the end of the month because it, it was one of the few places that still had a paper credit card machine rather than an online one. And that gave me three or four days of, <laughs> of, of extra money uh, before it would go out of my account, as it were, because um, if, I'd, if I'd used the, uh, the online one, it would have defaulted. So, yeah, I mean, that was a, it, was, it, was a, it was a great period of time because it was really, you know, right, you know, putting your, your money on the line to run a business and drive things in. Yeah, buck stops there, as it were. I love it. So I'm currently trying to get my head around Mr. Wickman's wisdom, right, and uh, traction. And I've not actually read the full book yet. I've read like the first half about six times and just keep on reading it and reading it and reading it. Uh, don't think it's the sort of book that if you read in a week, you get anything from, is it? You've got to study this thing. Um, Agreed. So can we just can we just talk about? Uh, strategic coach and yep. um, unique abilities then. And, yep. and particularly you said a moment ago, that kind of point where you realize that, you know, being an advisor was good and, you know, reasonably okay at it, but actually it's more exciting to you to focus on creating an environment where people can do, spend their time on their unique abilities and create an yep. environment of success. So, so how do you approach that? You know, what are you thinking? Is it organizational design? Is it, is it, is it environment? Is it just attitude? Is it just education? What is it? All of, all of the above. And I think as I've gone through, uh, my career, that's obviously changed from business to business. You know, I, I've been hugely fortunate to operate in all manner of different environments, um, and all manner of different sizes of businesses, uh, in that kind of way. So, you know, talking about organizational design and, you know, target operating models in, in a business where, you know, as I say, you're, you're, you're emptying the bins would seem a bit 
random. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly in an organization like I am now, then yes, it's all about that. But but ultimately, uh, you know, it does come back to, as far as I'm concerned, um, being a huge advocate in personal profiling, you know, in psychometric testing, understanding out the back of that what everyone's actual real skill is, understanding what people's operating styles are, Oper- understanding how they choose to learn stuff and understand stuff um, and then taking everything else away you know and, mm-hmm. and I think for advisors yeah, it's all about you know building trust creating inno- innovative solutions uh, and delivering what you say and, and reality is if we can therefore take everything else around that I mean, let's be clear most of us didn't join the the uh, the profession to sit and write huge long reports uh, or create huge analysis uh, that probably just confuse the clients if we're not careful anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. But that ability to build a relationship um, and engender that trust, I, I think, is is phenomenal and hugely powerful and something that I, I don't think the profession gets anywhere near enough credit for the great work that advisors do in that space. You know, I, I've had the privilege of, you know, working with so many advisors over the years in so many different environments and the transformation that they have delivered to clients' lives is just unbelievable. Uh, and yeah. it happens every day of the week. And, you know, I think we just gloss over that on occasions um, and, yeah. you know, get, get lost in, in the minutiae, really. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, so let's talk about, so we started in an organization that is relatively small, particularly if you yeah. compare it to what is now the mighty quilter with all its yeah. different facets. Um, let's talk about how you kind of, your, your whether it's skill set or outlook needed to evolve as your environment evolved. So when you were in a smaller business, you had to think about, as you say, all things to how does that, you know, as I said, how does that evolve as you work at a bank hall or a quilter or exactly I mean, some, some of the team probably say it doesn't and i'm still a control freak but um the <laughs> um again i've had the benefit of that growth being gradual uh ultimately from kind of six people to 20 people to 80 people you know to to then i guess real uh the, i mean the real transformation for me probably i, I was i was thinking about this on the drive back yesterday, I think, yeah, actually, weirdly, I've seemed to have, it's every 10 years that I seem to have moved into kind of some form of kind of transformational piece. But I mean, one of the key ones for me and, you know, the business and the individual that probably shaped my career and shaped my character as an individual more than anyone else um, was Alan Rosengren and joining Falcon Group, you know, still an incredibly close friend of mine. Uh, executor on my will so you know that's that's the kind of uh, <laughs> level yeah. that I hold you in um, and um, you know from that perspective I think it's it's really clear for us that um, we've ah my, sorry my computer has just told me it's about to reboot if I'm not careful <laughs> I'm on this time hold on give me a sec um I think we're going to be all right. Hold on. It serves me right for continuing to defer an update. (laughs) (laughs) We've all done it. Well, that's better. Let's carry on and see. Um, 
Yeah, where were we? Uh, yeah, so um, Alan. Let's go back to Alan. What? What is Rosenberg? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I guess that that kind of growth for me has happened over a, a, a myriad of different sizes of businesses. Um, yeah, probably one of the biggest transformational changes, as I said, was was really uh, engaging with. Alan Rosengren. Um, so I, I've known Alan for many years and probably the, the biggest influence on both my career and me as a character probably um, in how I operate. Um, so 2006, uh, I kind of hang up my boots from the the, the local IFA business I've been in, uh, yeah. just accepting that, yeah, this isn't going to work um, and go and join Falcon Group. Uh, in in Bristol, that was a big step because I was going from probably eighty advisors and a handful of staff uh, up to hundreds of advisors, um, but you know still a business that had been built from grassroots up, mm. um, and you know was very much a, a family business between Alan and Julian ultimately um, uh, in how that was run, but but a big step uh, and uh, through that kind of business. We listed on AIM uh, as a holding company, uh, carried out a number of transactions and acquisitions during that period of time. Uh, and uh, at that point, we were the second largest AIM listed uh, on the market, the largest being Lighthouse Group. Um, and uh, after many years of probably competing with each other on acquisitions and bidding up each other's prices on acquisitions, um, we, uh, we, we cut a uh, as a group, particularly Alan and Malcolm Stratfield, decided actually it might be better to to, to work together. Um, and uh, ultimately, those businesses merged, um, and I went from MD of the Falcon business at that point to to MD of Lighthouse. Um, but again, a step up because you suddenly got another thousand plus advisors, uh, offices in multiple locations, um, and a very quick a adaption, as it were, to how that operated, um, and a big restructure on, you know, cost savings, office closures, efficiencies, drive that. Um, uh, and, and again, but, you know, I've been hugely fortunate to work with and for um, some hugely talented people, um, but ones who operate in entirely different ways. Um, yeah. and we, we used to laugh on the fact that, you know, uh, Alan, we're pretty convinced, used to write back to even the spam emails to thank them very much for their time, but, you know, wasn't interested. Uh, I remember ringing the map instructor about, two months into having worked for him it's my reporting line moved from Alan to, to Malcolm saying you are getting my emails aren't you it's like yeah why I said well, I don't get any response he's like oh no you'll soon know if I don't agree <laughs> so oh, okay um, <laughs> um, so it um, but you know uh, I, I learned huge amounts of Malcolm as well uh, in the in the coming years from there and, and particularly around execution of plans uh, mm -hmm. and restructure and how we drove that change uh, and putting the greater good uh, of, a, of an organisation uh, above kind of individuals, as it were, and that that was that was a tough journey without a shadow of a doubt. Um, but again, fairly gradual. Didn't feel like a big move at the time. Um, uh, and again, I'd had the benefit of being on boards by then for a long time. Uh, and understanding that dynamic, understanding that engagement, et cetera, um, and still quite a close-knit business. Um, uh, and I guess I was there uh, up until just post-RDR. So, you know, I've, uh, I've been approached for a new opportunity in 2012, um, but wanted to see that lighthouse business through RDR. 
um, was equally on a year's notice period, so I'm not sure I had much choice. Um, and sure. um, uh, yeah, we kind of went through that, and I, and then I ended up at Sesame Bank All Group, uh, which was a whole different story. Yeah, but before we get there, before we talk about Sesame, I want to talk about change as a yeah. as a topic, transformation. Um, you, you squash two big companies together, as you say, inevitably leads to significant trans- transformation projects. Um, I'm sure you, dare I say, probably, you know, uh, executed those differently then than you would execute now with the benefit yeah. of experience and hindsight. So yeah. what are Real your scar. general observations? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What are your general observations on delivering transformation well? Uh, well, that assumes we, we have delivered transformation well, but I, I think I have to improve <laughs> each time. Um, I, I think it's, yeah, you can't forget the people, you know, and yeah. the, the people at the heart of any organization. And for me, that's always been the key thing. Um, I, and I've rarely fallen, fallen out with anyone in, in my career. Well, one of my colleagues probably, I think, saw people as a chess game rather than actually uh, uh, as, as individuals, which didn't sit well with me. Um, but I, I think the, uh, you know, I've been fortunate through that period of time. And uh, when I was at Falcon Group, uh, of course, our chair was uh, the wonderful Paul Bradshaw, you know, who's been mentioned by, you know, a number of people in, in these as, as a great kind of inspiration, as it were. So, yeah, I got exposure to Paul at a very young age uh, as chair. Um, and, and huge wise counsel from him on how to deliver that kind of level of change and transformation. Um, and again, I kind of knew Paul Matthews quite well at this point. Um, and, you know, Paul, who now sits as one of the non-executive directors at Quilter, you know, but Paul saying to me many, many years ago, uh, who had led many transformations himself, you know, every, every time I come at the end of it, I wish I'd gone harder and faster. Um, and that's probably the bit that I've, really okay. taken away from it uh, is that uh, there's always a resistance to change um you know particularly when we did the falcon lighthouse transaction um you know that was a business that had been running for 19 years on our side and and not dissimilar on the other um lots of emotions lots of uh embedded reality around that as it were um uh, and actually death by a thousand cuts is probably more painful um, than actually going at it more fast and kind of going, well, actually, this is going to end up looking like this. We kind of all know what that's going to be. Let's get there faster. Um, and and I think providing that. clarity to people is is the real key thing uh, and transparency. Yeah, I think that's one of the key takeaways is you're not always going to know the answers in these transformations and you're not always going to know what the end state looks like and who's going to be impacted and how they're going to be impacted. Uh, and I think you just got to face into that and be, be open and transparent with people, but equally not make any false promises. Um, and, oh, yeah. you know, certainly over the years, um, yeah, I've had the, you know, uh, bit that no one particularly likes doing of closing offices, making people redundant, you know, restructuring businesses to remove thousands of advisors because they didn't fit the particular model, et cetera. Um, yeah, I think the only thing you can do is try and be tra- f- fair and transparent in that. Uh, and, you know, certainly, yeah, that was one of the key things I learned from, you know, both Alan and Malcolm during my time uh, at Lighthouse and Vulcan. Um, and then just kind of facing into that and being uh, entirely open with people where you can be. Hmm. 
Yeah. No, I think that's. I think there's some. There's a lot of good stuff in there. But let's let's kind of move forward then to post that time and landing at uh, Sesame Bank Hall. Um, do you want to kind of talk through the the journey you had within the business? Yeah, that 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 was a that was a different one. Yeah. So I mean, I, I uh, obviously ended up at Sesame Bank Hall. Uh, one hell of an induction process there because I think within months we wow. were. Uh, the, the 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 largest enforced business in the UK, um, and uh, you know, parent company decided they didn't want to be in the advice. Um, uh, a chairman who'd left, a chief executive who'd left, um, and uh, a kind of fairly extensive restructure ahead of us, together with a lot of regulatory concerns and a, uh, I think, still probably the largest pension back review ever carried out in the market. Um, uh, and that was just a huge shift in gear. Um, and yeah, one that, uh, I still look back at now and kind of go, did that really happen on, on occasions? Um, it's, you know, we gone from a business that at, it, at its peak was still in, well, in today's terms, quite big, but you know, it wasn't one of the big Goliaths uh, at the time of, uh, as Lighthouse and one where pretty much certainly all advisors who joined, I, I would know and meet, um, largely a lot of the staff I would know and meet, and then I suddenly kind of rock up at Sesame Bank Hall and uh, my office in the Altrincham office was at the end of our contact centre floor. Uh, and I really struggled with that kind of concept that I could drive up one week and it'd be one set of faces and I could drive up the following week and it'd be a different set of faces um, because the, the just the, the vastness of the number of staff and advisors we had, um, I really struggled with that transition um, going from an environment where you know, back in the Falcon days, not only did you know the advisors, but you knew you know, husbands, wives, children, you know, everything to, mm-hmm. to now where you had to reluctantly accept, and I still struggle with this now, that you, you can't have that relationship if you're looking after a business that has 3,000 plus advisors. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's that's something I don't think I will ever naturally get used to. Um, but I think moving from... Where I was to the, the Sesame Bank Hall Arena, um, that size and scale was a big shock to the system. Um, and equally, yeah, I suddenly found myself in meetings with you know, Clifford Chance, Linklaters, uh, Friends Life Boards, etc., and uh, you know who were all incredibly patient and generous with their time. Um, but you know, it's it was a big uh, uh, it was a big learning curve, uh, and particularly. Uh, I, I remember one one particular element where we were due to present to the Friends Life Board, and I thought we'd put this monstery uh, paper together, but you know, suddenly it was brought down to earth when I realised that actually we, we had about five minutes on the agenda in, in about a week's worth of board meetings. It's like, oh, okay, right, <laughs> that's that, that's got to put us back in our place, kind of thing. So I think it's um, right. you know, it, it's really that shift from scale. Uh, you know, uh, I, I think is a is a different way of operating, and is one that you then have to let go of certain things. Which yeah. Probably something that come naturally to me, um, and uh, let go of the relationships, which is probably the bit that uh, is the biggest shift that you've got to make at that point. Mm. So you you described yourself earlier in this conversation as a control freak at one point or another. You definitely use those words. I can't remember yeah. what context. Yeah. Um, so how does someone that describes themselves as a control freak in you know, adapt? 
how do you decide which where to let go yeah so um again focusing back on what you know unique ability what 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 what, what yeah. is that focus but but equally surround yourself with better people than you are um which i don't find particularly challenging um you know the the um the the key thing is that we we if you can bring those people in and i think if you've done a lot of the roles yourself over that period of time because you've come from that smaller business so there's a bit you've done a recruitment you've done relationship management account management you've done a bit of it yeah you, you know, i mean you are everyone's worst nightmare because you know enough just to be really dangerous um <laughs> and um therefore being really clear that you get the right talent around you and, and importantly that you get the talent that are willing and able to call you out and you create the environment where they can um i, I think that's one of the things that uh, I, I must be some kind of masochist, but it gives me the greatest pleasure is actually when even a relatively junior member of staff will, you know, walk up to my desk or into my office and go, you know, this is going to be an unmitigated disaster, what you've agreed to do here, don't you? Um, and you can right, talk me through that. Yeah. Um, and um, I think creating that environment, uh, and I see too many businesses where, they don't have that environment and a working assumption that the executive and the board know what they're doing, which as I say to our team is always a really dangerous one. You know, yeah, the, the certainly in the business of that size um, and, and our size as Quilter, um, you are inevitably a few steps removed from the day-to-day -day. Um, and the people who are best qualified to make some of these decisions and ensure that they're the right ones are the ones doing the day-to-day. -day. Um, and that's really critical as far as I'm concerned, uh, not only in delivering change and transformation, but just BAU. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, a, another great influence on my career, uh, Ian Thornicroft, bless him. Um, you know, that, again, I had the, the benefit of engaging with very young age, as it were, um, said to me, you know, Steve, one thing you must never lose is connection with advisors. Uh, and to this day, yeah, first thing that goes in my diary every week is meetings with advisors, um, because that's what keeps me grounded to what we're trying to achieve. Um, and it's really easy to become dislocated from that to make decisions that you well-meaningly think are the right ones when you're sat around a board table somewhere, um, but actually engaging with the advisors and understanding what that's going to mean directly to them. Yeah. Um, Advices are never usually shine coming forward and telling you where you've got it wrong. Um, <laughs> I was with a group of our national top performers yesterday in, in Burton on Trent, you know, and it's, yeah, the feedback's great. And there's a few things that came from that yesterday alone that you kind of go, oh, actually, that was on our roadmap, but I hadn't necessarily realized how impactful that change yeah. will be. So, as of this morning, much to the frustration of some of my team members, I have no doubt we've brought that forward on, on, on the roadmap. Um, yeah. But I think that connection and that connection at grassroots with uh, you know, your staff and colleagues who are actually doing the heavy lifting on a daily basis uh, just becomes really crucial. And I think during a change and transformation environment, even more so. Yeah. No, I really like that. And I think um, more businesses and more executives within businesses would benefit a lot from not forgetting that point that actually you know, from your ivory tower or you know the, the the top floor in the big glass building actually the changes are um 
are felt most by those actually delivering yeah. the solution, whatever that is, in any type of environment. So I think that's I think that's really good. Um, but let's let's talk about your time now. Um, so let's fast forward to today. Um, Quilter is an enormous business with many different aspects, um, and somehow you know Lighthouse, I guess, is a is a is a part of that again, which yeah. is an interesting yeah. interesting perspective. Um, yeah. How do you approach um, strategic decisions? This is a big question, but you know, strategic decisions in an environment where there is so many different distribution channels, so. So, so wide-reaching the opportunity. Um, how do you make sure that you have the right information? I guess to to make the right decision. Yeah, no, we're we're hugely fortunate. Um, the the size and scale, strength of the balance sheet, uh, you know, skill set that we have around our business just gives us such a competitive advantage in the big scheme of things. Uh, equally, there's a few of us around the business who have operated in different environments as well. So whether that's owner managed, whether it's VC, whether it's yep. listed FTSE 100, yeah. And an acceptance that actually they're all great and bad in their own ways. Mm-hmm. You know, they've, they've all got their pros and cons. Uh, and, you know, my real drive at the moment is like, how do we get the speed of decision-making of a private equity backed type environment together with the longevity of agenda and strength of balance sheet of a PLC, because mm. that's a hugely powerful combination. Uh, and the, the challenge is, you know, in smaller businesses, you tend to have that flexibility of being able to move and change quickly, but you may not have the funding to do so, or if you do, it comes with its prices in many, many different ways. Um, through to the other side where, you know, big corporates, it's really easy to become slow to change, lots of governance, lots of layers, etc. So, you know, uh, us driving, that's really key. Yeah, you know, we've done lots of work over the last two years, particularly to take the quilter business from a series of federated individual models of, you know, DFM, investment business, platform business, advice business, and flatten that to uh, an environment that delivers for clients. Yeah, that, that, that's right. what we're here for. We deliver for clients and advisors in the best possible way uh, and provide them that access to advice, investment, and platform and scale. Um, the level of data that we have um, is really powerful because unlike yeah, most right. of the players in the market, we have that omni-channel approach that um, that kind of cradle-to-grave delivery which is something I, I get a real kick out of from our organization of being able to take a totally inexperienced new entrant through our academy you know guarantee them an employed role in our own national together with leads from 34 affinity relationships that means that you know we can gather them truly qualified quantity of leads to help them build a book of business mm-hmm. um at, through to them them choosing to go self-employed choosing to be part of our franchise model choosing to have their own name above the door a slightly different kind of wider proposition in our network through to you know, deciding that actually they may have a different risk appetite to ours as a plc they want to go directly authorized um but do so without disruption uh to the the kind of client journey as it were um 
it is hugely powerful. Um, and I think then on the back of that as well um, comes the other route for us. So going from directly authorized, looking at hanging up their boots, looking at an exit strategy, right. you know, actually us being able to bring them in. And again, firms who are supporting our quarter platform, driving that kind of transition, uh, being able to get the backing of a PLC business uh, and the balance sheet behind them to give them the confirmation that they are going to therefore get an exit that works um, is really powerful. Um, uh, and of course, that kind of constant cycle is equally what then continues to feed the lead generation for our own national business in that space. Uh, so I think for, for us, that omnichannel comes with great benefit, comes with challenges as well. You know, our, our approach, yeah, has to be far more uh, low key um, because I'm relatively agnostic as to where people sit as advisors in that journey. Um, yeah. Therefore, I, I mean, you know, have no wish to bang the drum that one model is better than the other because I think there's a place for all of us. And I think one of the things yeah. that depresses me about our profession is the number of, and the amount of mudslinging that goes on between different models and different organizations. You kind of go, I think, yeah, advisors get up in the morning to do the right thing by their clients, irrespective of which model they're in. And there's room for yeah. all of those in the market. And actually we should be coming together to promote the great work that advisors do irrespective of what model they sit in. Um, and I think that's something we've, as a profession, but it's still a long way to go on. I agree. I agree. Um, we It's not actually been released yet, but Peter Mann uh, was on a uh, podcast last time. It's out on Wednesday. Um, I guess when this has come out, it's been out for two weeks, right? But, um, you know, he talks about, he, he he's exactly the same as you, you know, still in the virtues of advice and, you know the the world's biggest yeah. ambassador for the advice market, and he his his story kind of goes along the lines of, um, you know, we're the only profession that actually gives something to a person in a time of need. Everyone else right. comes and takes stuff, and yeah, yeah. It, um, and yeah, as you say, we just continue to shout about each other, and you know, give SJP a load of, sh you know, <laughs> and actually, uh, we we should maybe move the uh, the conversation elsewhere, but. Um, right. And, and I think, you, you know, to your point, the, the the key thing for us in that kind of strategic decision making is the, the, the level of data that we can therefore collect from all those different channels, yeah, from all those different models, because it's not just a national business, it's not just a network, it's not just a platform, um, is, yeah, part of, part of our challenge is we've probably got too much data and then trying to move that into that allows us to make those strategic decisions is... is yeah, the tough one. Um, and then again, in a consistently changing and adapting market, um, you know, we're, we're really clear that we're here for the long term. You know, we're here as a PLC business um, with the backing that we've we've got and, and we've had, uh, you know, the, the legacy that we've got in that to drive this for the long term. Um, and therefore, our decision processes need to be those that are sustainable, deliverable, you know, driving everything that is right for the clients and advisors in the long term, um, you know, from that perspective. And I think that the, the strategy that we have built over the years in, in the quarter organization has really helped us get to this position in doing so. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that's 
really exciting for the future as well. But I think from a profession perspective, you know, there is so much for us all still to do um, and to come together on rather than to pull apart at. Hmm. Agreed. Agreed. So I'm going to move the conversation on to a, a I suppose, a slightly more personal um, avenue. Um, and I guess, you know, I'll summarize it with the word perspective and you'll, you'll know exactly where I'm going with this. Yeah. Um, uh, I guess it, you know, easily summarized by, not that I've ever seen it, but I believe the, uh, the background of your screen image on your phone. Um, yeah. You know where I'm going. I'll just, I'll let yeah. you take us there if you will. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I, I guess, I mean, uh, lots of people, uh, who've known me for many years will know that my daughter suffered from meningitis at the age of 14 months and spent many yes. weeks, uh, in a coma as a result. And, and, uh, luckily, uh, made a full recovery and is now an incredibly annoying 15 year old daughter. Um, <laughs> um, uh, you know, but, but, um, at the time, you know, both my wife and I, huge career-oriented individuals, um, and uh, there is nothing that builds your perspective on how important, uh, yeah, a regulatory intrusion is, or a, you, you know, a, a, a discussion on this, that, and the other is when you know, bloody, you're pacing up and down uh, the intensive care unit, watching your 14-month-year-old wired up to every machine in in the sun, uh, as it were, yeah, um, and. Yeah, that's been hugely personal for, from that perspective, uh, a, a huge shift to uh, how I operate. Uh, you know, I, I was definitely one of those who would have been working all weekends. Um, uh, I was definitely the one that used to drive my team nuts when I was away on holiday because uh, I'd be sat around the, the pool on the Blackberry, uh, tap, tapping away. And yeah, as they used to it's just so much worse when you're awake, because at least when you're in, in the UK, you're in meetings and we get some respite. Um, to, to a position where, you know, now I, uh, I'm really, really kind of quite yeah. selfish about those kind of things and, uh, you know, ensure that when I go away, I do go away. Um, uh, and equally, it just helps in that day-to-day -day aspect. So, you know, I'm, I've been hugely involved in uh, two meningitis charities, well, three, because I brought two together uh, 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 into meningitis now as it is. Uh, and then more recently, uh, uh, Spencer Damon, uh, uh, from that perspective and enjoying that. That's great. You know, it's affected my uh, my life and our lives in so many different ways uh, for, you know, the, the positive, but clearly we were what I always termed the, the kind of grateful guilty, you know, we were forever guilt, feeling guilty that uh, Ella made it through when so many people don't from this horrendous disease. Um, right. Us being able to uh, be involved in the charities that have brought the the men B vaccine to the market, which means that you know that is now part of uh, the the vaccination program for for newborns, etc., is phenomenal. Um, and I think when you're sat in an office or in the car driving somewhere and pissed off with something and something's not going the right way, and actually you kind of uh, yeah, and it is hence the reason it's on my screen. Yeah, uh, look down at your phone and go, yeah, actually none of this really matters, does it? Um, yeah. And I think that's been, you know, phenomenal. And I think, yeah, very small, very small cog in a much bigger wheel in that kind of space. Um, but uh, being able to do that's been great. It's something that I personally ensure that I spend probably one day a month uh, involved in those organizations because, again, it's just helps bring reality back. Um, 
and and it's helped in ways that I never imagined it would. So yeah, one of the things I'm in effect I've sat as non-exec directors uh, in, in the form of trustees now um, on organisations for over ten years, um, and actually it's really helped me I think be a better executive and board member from that perspective as well because you kind of see it from the other the other side of actually I'm not living and breathing this organisation day in day out. Can we not have these hugely lengthy papers that demonstrate to me how intelligent you are, but actually don't really help me understand what the issue is or what you're asking of me, you know, and let's get rid of all the acronyms. Let's do this, that, and the other. So I think that's been a really weird uh, side effect uh, of this. Um, but yeah, I mean, from our perspective, uh, both Claire and I, you know, hugely proud to be involved in uh, the small cogs in the meningitis movement to help that kind of do, but it's... Um, yeah, something that kind of brings reality back, that's for sure. Yeah, I like it. And actually, if we if we go back to uh, episode two, I think, um, of, of this, where we had a conversation with Emma Watson, um, yeah. she had exactly the same thing to say, which was she was involved in, uh, forgive me, Emma, I forget which charity she's involved with, but she's involved in, in multiple charities and, and Asat has a trustee on those on those boards. And she was saying exactly the same thing, that the actual development opportunity and the exposure that you get is just yeah. so so much wider than you would ordinarily appreciate. Um, and she and she suggested that actually, if you were serious about progressing your executive career, that it can be actually a game changer in terms of... Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's it really helps in so many ways. And, and the, the, the help that you can bring uh, in those kind of organisations, so you know, even just in, I mean, we were struggling with GDPR um, mm. in in the charity, and you know, I'm kind of sat here over here with, uh, you know, God knows how many people looking at GDPR for us at a group level at that point, and yeah. having you know the, the the resources and understanding to be able to kind of help in those kind of environments. Um, but yeah, what you get back from it, you know, not only if the charity and the, the organization is something that you're hugely passionate about, but then actually from a career perspective, I think is, is very powerful. Yeah, I agree. So we'll kind of move the conversation to a point of reflection, I guess. Um, so you've, you've done a variety of different roles in different organizations. You know, you have grown to really understand, um, you know, strategic coach and the framework that that kind of, employs and makes you think about the world and a business if you had a a lesson that you could um pass on to a aspiring executive in any in any sme or scaling advice or scaling business what would you say would be the the, the main uh learning you have to share um okay uh probably ask um Ask and stay curious. Uh, I've been hugely fortunate to largely be in the right place at the right time um, and have been intrigued by what was going on, you know, whether that's right back in building the first satellite pieces in the garage, as it were, um, uh, or, or, you know, working with Alan Rosengren. Uh, you know, uh, just ask. And I think... Um, People have been so generous with their time, and and I just think generally that is the case that people are willing to. I know I am, uh, you know, from that perspective. Um, 
and I think it's one of the things we're we're seeing at the moment. And I think it's one of the things that you know I remain very worried about in a post-COVID environment is with the return to office still being something that everyone's struggling with. What's the balance, and what's this, that, and the other? I, I look at how much I learned from overhearing people in an office and how they were dealing with certain situations, how they were engaging with each other over challenging situations or you know aspects that need to be dealt with uh, and that visibility and you don't get that if you're sat at home um looking at a screen uh and i think that's something we haven't quite got right yet uh as a uh, yeah, nation let alone uh, 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 a kind of organization um but i think you know from my perspective it would be ask ask for opportunities uh ask to understand more um seek to understand and add value where you can um and be willing to step up and be accountable um you know that's that's the kind of key thing that i guess i've always sought to add value first and expect reward later i'm hoping the reward will come in the next life if not this one um you know but i I think you know that that's probably the bit of advice i would give if if i'm qualified to give any advice to anyone i like it that's 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 good advice i think steve but we'll 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 move on to uh the the famous quick fire round i'm not sure if it's famous really but i'll call it famous Uh, yeah uh so if you haven't listened to one, but you said you have, so I, I'm sure you'll understand the concept. Yeah. The idea, questions never change, so you probably know what they are, but don't think too much about them. Yeah. Uh, just just come out with it. So, are you ready? Yeah, go on. I think I need to get some like background music for this part, don't I, or something. But... <laughs> right, calm down, clock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, Steve, uh, what are you currently reading? Uh Kind of combining two passions of mine. So uh, a book called Saving Jaguar, which is about one of the kind of restructures of Jaguar. Um, okay. Yeah, that's that's the current read. Cool, cool. Is it good? Yeah, it's really interesting. Completely different sector, completely different environment, but, you know, lots of parallels with what I've seen in my career as well. Sounds good. Sounds good. Okay. Um, who is your idol, role model? Yeah, I was thinking about this because, you know, I do listen to these. So it's, it's, well, see, I'm not a great one for having idols, but I have people yeah. that I hugely admire, many of which I've kind of mentioned already. Um, but the, the one for me probably is Steve Damon. So Steve Damon was the founder of the original meningitis charity and very much seen as the, the father of the meningitis movement. And, and that's a individual who lost his son to the terrible disease um, and has just dedicated the whole of his life ever since to the eradication of the disease, the awareness of the disease, and that the passion and enthusiasm and drive that that individual shows together with the compassion to be at anyone's door in their darkest hour and provide support. I kind of go, I, I could only I could only dream of being a tenth of the man that he is on a daily basis. So yeah, it's probably the closest I have in that space. Yeah, I'd say it's a pretty good one. Yeah, sounds good. Um, okay, my favourite. Um, in one word, how would your partner describe you? Yeah, given this is probably supposed to be a clean <laughs> podcast, uh, let's go. Let's go with frustrating. Frustrating. Okay. All right. We won't. We won't scratch at that one. But um, we'll move on. Um, 
What's your pet hate? Uh, lack of transparency and surprises, probably. Um, surprises. I think there's, there's very little that, again, because of that kind of perspective issue, um, there's very little I can't deal with or cope with um, as long as it's open and transparent. And I think, you know, we've all been let down by people in the past, but I think that, that, kind of two-way loyalty, transparency, openness is, is kind of the key thing that I kind of live my life by and expect others to. Sounds reasonable. Okay, right. So this is the exciting question, Steve. So um, you can go on holiday anywhere in the world, take your wife and your kids or or not, as the case may be, <laughs> yeah. depending on uh, the week, I guess. But um, yeah. Signia are paying. Where do you go? Um. Well, I mean, given that you're paying, it would be rude not to go somewhere ridiculously expensive, wouldn't it? So um, we, we had the fortunate, uh, again, married to a program director now, so um, everything is regimented, including all our savings. And post-COVID, okay. uh, having not been away on holiday for X number of years, then actually uh, we did decide to blow a bunch and went to the Maldives. And I have to say, that was a completely different league to anything we'd done before. So yeah, if, you, if you're going to pay, that's where I'm going. I'll, I'll decide it's... whether I'm taking the wife and kids near the time. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Deal. Cool. Well, Steve, this was this was a lot of fun. Thank you for um, coming on to share Isn't your it? story and your perspective on life, which is nice um, and and important as well. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Pleasure. Thank you.